Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Thank you, Elias, for praying. I've been coming to Battersea for a few months now with my lovely wife, Sabina. I can never resist introducing her whenever I'm speaking anywhere. As Elia said, it's the last episode, uh, coming from a film producer, that's quite natural, on I Am. Just to give you a brief backstory, because I'll share some experiences and stories from a different part of my life. I was found by Jesus seven years ago, and before that I was a Hindu priest for 20 years of my life. I was in charge of Europe and Russia uh, for a very wealthy, affluent Hindu denomination, evangelizing, building temples and congregations. So some of my experiences and my stories will come from that chapter of my life, which I still find very useful today in my walk with Jesus. So we'll read John 15, 5, some of the verses, but I'd like to camp more on John uh, 15, verse 5 itself. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You already You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the true vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15.5 is actually my life verse. When Viv asked me to speak on this, I was quite astonished because this is my favorite verse in the Bible. A few weeks ago, my wife and I went to Hampton Court Palace. We love palaces, castles and gardens and those kind of places. While we were there, we didn't know that Hampton Court Palace houses the world's largest vine. So we went to see this vine. It was planted 300 years ago. But what was interesting about that moment while we were observing the branches, I mean, the branches were beautifully directed along the glass ceiling. The average branch was 35 meters long. It's been producing black grapes for the last 300 years that have been distributed to royal families across Europe. But everyone who is looking at the different branches, very quickly, once they've had a quick glimpse at the length and the growth, they turn to look at the source, where it's coming from, how is it growing, what is providing that growth. And I found it fascinating. With most of the things 
we admire, we appreciate, we love, we look at, we always want to know what is the source, what's behind it. This verse is offering a lifestyle of abiding in the presence of God, spending time with Jesus, resting in him, having communion. I just want to offer some imagery before I continue sharing my thoughts. The source of the River Nile is still in debate today. But as a child, it was on my bucket list to go to the source of the River Nile. So in 1999, when I was a priest, a bunch of us flew into Uganda. And in Uganda, there's a small city by the name of Jinja, and a few kilometers from Jinja is the source of the River Nile. We went there and we camped around the source of the River Nile, and when we went to the actual bank to see where it begins, one of the other priests asked a really funny question, but it stuck with me forever. He said, so where does the river start and where does the lake end? And I was reflecting on this a few weeks ago. Because when you sit at the source of the Nile, Lake Victoria is the second largest lake in the world. It's the largest tropical lake in the world. It's 26,000 square miles. And Kenya, Uganda, these countries sit around the border of the lake. And Uganda, uh, this, this tiny location where the River Nile starts, if you, if you sit there and you look, you can't tell where the lake ends and where the river begins. It's a beautiful picture of communion. And yet, that lake is the source for the force of this river to travel 4,130 miles, cut through nine nations, and hit the sea so hard, some say it makes the seawater sweet for a further 50 miles. The branch in Hampton Court Palace has been attached to the vine for 300 years. It cannot even think of leaving the vine for one day and assuming that I can attach myself again and survive. That's what remain in the vine means. The force of the river Nile for 4,000 miles cannot exist if it's not in communion and supported by the serene, tranquil, and yet powerful Lake Victoria. So Jesus uses the word here, remain. What does remain mean? Well, what it doesn't mean is remain a Christian, come to church on a Sunday, do the courses, join a team, all these things are important. Being a part of community is important. Joining a team, being part of something, doing a course, they're vital in our life with Jesus. What he's saying here is that Christian activity cannot replace intimacy. It's possible to live a life immersed in Christian culture and still not meet with Christ. You can go to a party and still not meet the host. It's possible. What he's saying here in this verse is remain in me with, means can you spend time with me just to be, not for a word, not for what I've got for you in the next season, 
Can you enjoy me? And can you let me enjoy you? Not just on the Sunday, not just in the mornings, but throughout the day. Like we heard in the sermon last week, Jesus said, I am the gate. My people, my sheep, they come in and they come out. He didn't say that just for a Sunday. It was for every day, throughout the day, on and off. A few years ago, I remember Nikki Gumbel at HDB interviewed the head of the Egyptian Orthodox Church in the UK. And the head of the church said something really interesting. When he had finished his training in the monastery, his mentor said, well, now I'll place you in London and you can be in charge of the UK. And so he says to his mentor, I don't want to leave the monastery. I want to just spend time with God here. I want to read the word, worship, and just live my life in the monastery. And the mentor said, look, you never spend the whole of your life in the monastery. The monastery gets built inside you. And you take the monastery wherever you go. And as you commune with Christ, that monastery gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Teresa of Avila writes beautifully in her book, The Interior Castle, a lifestyle of prayer. What happens when you commune with Christ, spend time with him, this castle begins to get bigger and bigger. The joy, the peace, the liquid love, that space, that dwelling place for God's presence gets bigger and bigger and bigger. The secret place where we spend time with God starts off in a church setting when we first come to the Lord. Then it moves to a certain location in our home. We have a corner where we sit, where we spend time, where we want to be with God. And then it changes from a place to a constant posture. It's a constant communion that we have throughout our lives. What I find most difficult in my life every single day is busyness. From the minute we wake up, there's a pull. I gotta do this, I gotta do that, I gotta get this done, speak with that person. Even when you come to a church setting, I need to make sure I meet that person, that person, say that thing. Busyness in our culture has almost become synonymous to significance. If I'm not busy, I'm not important. When you go to a social setting or even a home group, if someone asks you, so what are you doing? Even if you're not doing anything, you feel compelled and pressurized. I better say a few big things. And so we often live this potential lifestyle of thinking that we're busy and that it's important. If we did nothing all week and spent time with God, we almost find it weird to say, well, I did nothing. I just chilled with God. And yet, why is that weird? And some of us are genuinely busy. I, I know people who, who have children, they're doing two jobs, just about paying rent and getting through life. But what I find in my life is when I say to myself, I'm too busy to spend time with you, God, today. And then I look in my own life and I say, well, I've got time to eat. If I can't eat at a certain time at the dinner table, I'll still take my food on the train. I'll eat while I'm walking. I'll eat while I'm talking. I'll eat on a Skype call. I'll have a croissant here on a Sunday, but I'll make sure that I'll eat. 
When I'm thirsty and I need water, it doesn't matter who I'm speaking with, everything comes to a standstill and I will drink water. Whatever I have acknowledged that I need in my life, I will discipline myself to make sure those things happen. Now the word discipline, more often, I think, in Western culture, is synonymous to punishment. It's not. Discipline can come out of religion, but it can also come out of romance. When you really love someone, your life starts to arrange itself around that person. When you know you need something, you discipline yourself to make sure those things happen. Discipline can come out of romance. What I feel fascinated by time and again in Jesus' ministry is you see him in the crowds preaching, healing the sick, cleansing lepers, casting out demons, and then suddenly you just read, and then he went to a quiet place and he spent time with his father. It doesn't say, and then it was that time of the day that he had put in his diary, and then he went to spend time with his father. It's almost such a natural instinct. He's super busy prophesying, preaching, and then suddenly it's vum. You know, a few years ago I was at David's tent and this dad was eating around uh, on a table and he had his child uh, tied to this elastic string so the child could play in a certain area. But I was watching this child and <laughs> You know, the child runs and runs and runs and suddenly doesn't realize, but it just gets pulled back. And it's such a beautiful picture of, of what we see in Jesus' life. There's this sudden burst of activity in a day, and then he gets pulled back. It's, it's without any reason or rationale. When we talk of childlike faith, we often define childlike faith as expectancy. You know, we expect our Father to provide. I'm going to take this leap of faith, and He will provide. This is true, but childlike faith also has another dimension. And the other dimension is this constant state of neediness and dependency that I need you. It's not just on a Sunday morning or in the early morning in the weekday. It's a constant need when you see children play it's fascinating they can be playing with their toys fully present fully engrossed in playing and then suddenly the child will just turn and run to its father or mother or while it's playing it'll be just fully engrossed in the toy and just completely occupied and it would turn and smile at its parent there's no rational reason there's no thought process behind the sudden turn but it's actually designed it's the way we are hardwired and designed. We are designed to be needy for the presence of God. What I find, and I think it's for most men, is that neediness and dependency is the opposite of proving, performing, and providing. If I find in my life I really don't need to be with God today, I've actually believed that I can sort this day out on my own. I can figure this out. I've got it sorted. 
When David wrote in the Psalms, my heart and flesh cry out for the living God. He wasn't conjuring up some romantic gesture to God. He was actually acknowledging his very design as a human being. While we're seated here right now, our heart and flesh long for the living God. That longing never dies, it never goes. It's our actual design. We may fill it with busyness and titles and other occupations, but that longing never ever disappears in our lives. So living a lifestyle of abiding, what Jesus says here, has other outworkings as well. The first and foremost is destiny. When we live in him, we cannot not walk into our destiny. We often chase the prophecy and we don't chase him. If you chase the prophecy, you'll create your own destiny. And when you create your own destiny, you have to sustain your own destiny. And that very thing you've created will destroy you. Why? Because your joy and peace is now tethered to that thing you've created. And so when someone criticizes that thing, or someone does better than that calling, your joy and peace levels, they fluctuate. But a lifestyle remained in the vine, where that is the source of my joy and peace. That's where I go. That's my affirmation. That's my confidence. That's my worthiness comes from this one place. Even when God calls us into our destiny and all of our gifts are being exercised and all of our talents are being used and every prophecy is coming to pass, we will still know that this is my source. And when we are fully in this, our joy and peace levels never fluctuate because we know that this is my source. It's imperative to God that we walk in our destiny. But it's imperative to God that the calling doesn't destroy us. And so remaining in him, that habit, that full acknowledgement, keeps us sustained when we start to move in our calling. Another dimension of leave, uh, living a lifestyle of abiding is this strange sense of effortless, effortlessness starts to flow in our lives. There's a beautiful story about Brother Lawrence who wrote the book Practicing the Presence of God. He was a Carmelite monk in Paris in the 1500s. And um, Brother Lawrence would just wash dishes. He would be washing dishes and so in communion with the presence of God, people would walk for miles and miles and miles just to come and see him wash dishes. When I hear this story, it just blows my mind. This guy did no evangelism outreach, you know, no posting on social media. He had to do nothing. His gaze was just there, and people were drawn to see him wash dishes. There was no powerful sermon. There was nothing. He was just engaged, but the anointing and the presence resting on him was so profound, people were drawn. I think when we engage with God 
and create a lifestyle with our face to his face, things that we could not do on purpose begin to happen by accident. Things around us start shifting, things around us start moving that we can't even do by force. You know, when an apple is attached to its branch, the branch and the apple don't have to think, I need to create more apples. It just stays connected and the apple begin to grow. There's an effortlessness. Another lifestyle benefit that happens from, re from remaining in the vine is spiritual warfare. Now, I have lovely friends who do all the shabba dabba dabba, you know, those kind of prayers and really warfare. I, I love watching that and I have a bunch of those people. They really go for it. They're sh super shouty, super screamy, and you're like, wow, I love it. And, and, and I, I love those people. And yet there's also a different style of warfare. Heidi Baker says the most powerful weapon in spiritual warfare is this posture of rest. A few years ago, I saw the movie The Hobbit. I don't know which part it was, probably the, f the first one, when the dragon's coming to destroy the whole city. The father and son run out of the house, and the father knows that there's only one arrow that can destroy this dragon, and there's only one place where this arrow has to penetrate in order to destroy it, and there's one hole. So he has his bow, but he doesn't have a proper contraption. So he says to the son, look, you stand there. I'm going to rest this huge iron arrow on your shoulder. And I'm going to shoot that dragon in that specific hole, and it will be finished. The son is so, so scared. It's a beautiful picture in the movie. The son's standing, and the father then puts the arrow on his shoulder, and he aims. And at that moment, while he's aiming, the son turns around to look at the dragon. He's, he's so scared. He turns around to look at the dragon, and the father says, don't look there. Look at me. And the son looks at the father, and the father shoots, and he penetrates that tiny hole and destroys the dragon. It's interesting in that vivid moment that the boy needed to be still. And we read the verse, be still and know that I am God. When we're in a battle, when we're in warfare, the most difficult thing is to be still and gaze. But when we are still and we gaze, he comes and he defeats. Some people who warfare think they have to defeat the enemy. They get so loud, they assume that they are against the enemy. You just need to stand aside and let the Father come in and do the, war, the, the warfare. The famous British um, pilot, Handley, I think it's the early 20s, he was flying from one destination to another destination and he had to refuel. So he lands the plane and he refuels the plane and he takes off again. After taking off in midair, he's, uh, he's got his oxygen mask on and he notices that there's a rat in the plane. And he knows very well with all these exposed wires and, and the fuel pipe, everything exposed, that rat can easily chew through something and the plane would be destroyed in midair. So what does he do? He takes the plane higher 
He cuts off the oxygen for the rat and he kills the rat. He didn't panic and land the, think of where can I land the plane. In the Gospels, when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, there's panic and pandemonium in the whole room. But John, in that very instant, he leans and he rests on the shoulder of Jesus. So it's a challenge for all of us, and I, and I find this difficult also in my life, but resting, abiding, helps us in warfare as well. It, and when we, when we really push for that, we create more space in the promised land here because it's a battle won by him, not by us. So finally, Jesus says here, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now this, this, this part triggers me sometimes because you see people in the world who don't know Jesus, they've done incredible inventions, they are incredibly affluent, they do wonderful businesses and all sorts of things. You know, Elon Musk doesn't believe in God and he's done Tesla and all sorts of things. But I was thinking on this a few weeks ago when Viv asked me to talk, and I remembered an incident, and you know, when you're a priest for 20 years wearing orange robes, people tell you exactly how it is. However their outward status, they will tell you exactly how it is. And I'm just coming to the end because I've seen this in my life time and again with people who seem to have it all. When I was 25, I was placed in London to oversee the whole of Europe and Russia. And so the head priest said, let me take you on a first tour to introduce you to all the significant people across Europe. So we were in Antwerp. Antwerp is the world's diamond center. You know, anyone you bump into in Antwerp, you say, what do you do? It's like, hello, is the Pope Catholic? Everyone's a diamond trader. So we went to meet one of the most affluent diamond traders who was very close to our uh, denomination. And I was 25. And so the head priest introduced him to me. And he started telling his story. Something had happened in his life. And the head priest said, so what's happened? He said, well, my brother and I bought 40% of Jet Airways. Jet Airways is, is another prominent Indian airline. It's an international airline. And then my brother, he sold off these shares without my acknowledgement in a dodgy deal. In India, things are possible. And then the priest said, I was just sitting. I, I knew this guy was some massive, massive profile. He said, so then what happened after that? He said, well, my brother decided to sue me. And, well, I've decided to sue him back. He said, what do you, the priest said, you know, when an Indian asks another Indian, they just ask frank questions. There's no British politeness tiptoeing around. They just say straight up, if you lose, how much do you have to pay? He said, $500 million. And then the other priest said, and if you lose, will you pay that? He goes, yeah, I'll just pay. I, I can't really be bothered. And I, and I just stood there and I thought, do you know how many zeros that is after the five? <laughs> it, it, it's like us going into McDonald's and ordering an extra fries. He said, I'll pay it. He had that much wealth. He took me around to his jewelry shops that day because he had just married his daughter. 
to another prominent diamond merchant and spent $10 million on the wedding. I saw the jewelry that he had made for his family, necklaces, $1.2 million. Shophard had made a watch for, his, for him, uh, $1.4 million with Angola diamonds. Then he took me to his, uh, his son-in-law's home. That home had diamonds on every lampshade. The toilet flush, I'm not kidding you, the flush handle was gold-plated. The toilet brush that you clean the toilet with was gold. I mean, these are prominent, prominent merchants. They, one of them invited Michael Jackson to India in 1996. I spent the day with these guys, and then I said, I need to go back, and I went back. And that evening, he came back to see me. I'm only 25, and he sits on the sofa in front of me, and he says, say something. I'm like, say what? What, what? what do you want me to say? He said, you know, my life is so empty. I've got this internal poverty. I just feel decay, nothing. I don't know what to do. And, and you know, you read these things in books about high-profile celebrities, really feeling empty. But when you see it happen in front of your very own eyes, it, it really hits home in a different way. And you think, apart from me, you can do nothing. Yeah, you'll do all these things, but you'll never have that fulfillment that your heart really desires. And I really, really believe when Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing, it means nothing that will bring you any deep inner fulfillment so my final prayer for us today is that we never get familiar with what we have we never get take for granted what we have the living Christ that we can sit with and spend time with and enjoy I pray that we never take that for granted not in that weird guilty or condemnation, a shameful kind of way. When I first went to India for my training to be a priest, because my ancestry is in East Africa, so I hadn't been to India in 1991. We were driving into the desert where this monastery is, and um, these group of people were prostrating on the floor, on, on the tarmac, on the road. And when they finished their, wherever they finished the prostration, where their hands are, they walk to that place and they do another one. This whole group was doing that. And I said to the driver, what, what, what are they doing? They said they're doing a pilgrimage, prostrating from Dwarka to Vrindavan, 2,000 miles. They will do that in 45 degrees Celsius in search for truth. And I got... I, was, I did a pilgrimage in my journey for my pursuit for truth. I traveled 2,000 miles, but I did it in a jeep. <laughs> I went to all the sacred pilgrimage sites across India in my pursuit for God. I climbed Mount Girnar, which is in the state of Gujarat. You know, it's 10,000 steps. A prominent Hindu deity, his shrine is at the top. You start at 8 o'clock in the morning. You climb these steps, and it takes seven, eight hours to get to the top. 
and then you worship and you pray and you prostrate. I've done that three times. On my third time, when I reached the top, I thought, what's the point of all this? What am I really getting? I just ticked another box. When I had my first encounter with Jesus, I thought, gosh, that's the difference between karma and grace. They're at complete opposites. And yet within the walk with Christ, it's tempting to get back into doing and not resting, proving and not being. So my prayer for myself and for all of us here today is that we, we live a lifestyle of, of loving and romance with the person of Jesus who is a living God. Amen? Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.